Well, we're at that time of year where we make New Year's resolutions, and um, statistically, 65% of Americans make a resolution, so within the room, you know, I guess that means 6.5 out of 10 of us will make a resolution, and, um, but by February, of those 65%, 80% will have failed, so by February... Uh, that sort of that, that gumption that you have this year is going to be different. By February, the majority of us will, that will be a distant memory. And so there's, you know, there's two kinds of people. I'm in the majority, <laughs> which means I make sometimes resolutions, New Year's resolutions. And regardless of the statistics, you know, statistics tell us things, but they don't always shape our behaviors. So, you know, I kind of know the statistics, but still I have this feeling that this is going to be the year that I get in shape. Like this is going to be the year that I get buff. It's actually going to work this year. And the gym memberships are so cheap that they've just done the math perfectly that I'm going to join a gym. Me and my son, we're going to do this. And there's this sort of this like embedded within humanity the majority of humanity thinks we can improve upon ourselves. And uh, most resolutions are made in the areas, I'm going to eat healthier, I'm going to get physically healthier, I'm going to have better rhythms, we're all about rhythms, I'm going to sleep better. You know, most of them are self-focused. I haven't heard very many people make a resolution that I'm going to be nicer (laughs) this year. I'm going to vow, I'm going to make a resolution to be nicer. But we, we do these things, and I think within it we have this feeling, um, man, life has to get better. Like, we have to keep moving forward. And I think there's something to that. But then set that next to our Christian faith. And within the Christian faith, um, the idea is that we are made new in Christ. And this is not something that we have done. It's not something that we have achieved by self-improvement. It's something that God has done through us, through Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. He lived this perfect life and, and died such a humble and sacrificial death. He rose again, had victory over sin, had victory over death, bringing us from death to life. And it's all his work. In fact, the the scripture, Jesus himself said, apart from me, you can do nothing. And yet here we find ourselves in this cultural mix of self-improvement and resolutions. And so really today, the sermon kind of lives on that threshold. If Jesus is making us new, what is our role in the refinement or the discipleship process? And How do we compare that with what can look like maybe self-help or a New Year's resolution? So that's where we'll be. And to to kind of live on that threshold, we'll be in the Gospel of Luke chapter 2 in a very unique story in the Gospels. This is Luke chapter 2. There's one Gospel writer that decided to tell a story about the boy Jesus, the young uh, man, almost a man, an older child, Jesus. 
Um, the gospel writer Luke includes this story, and it's the only account that we have. So it acts like this bridge between sort of the Christmas nativity um, to the earthly ministry of Jesus, which is the bulk of the gospels. We have this one singular story of the boy Jesus. So it's a, a rare picture where we see Jesus, the Savior and Son of God in the flesh, we see him as a child. And what I'd like to draw out from the story is just some of the ordinary nature of it. And it can point to how ordinary Jesus's life actually was. And then hopefully in turn, that will maybe speak into our lives about how do we live within this idea of rebirth being made new versus renewal or being made more like Christ in our day-to-day lives. So you can turn to Luke chapter 2. I'll read this for us. It will also be on the screen. You can follow along if you want to listen that way. This is the Gospel writer, Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 41. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, They went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Do you remember getting lost as a child? So let's just be honest here. All of us at one point got lost as children, even for a brief moment. Many of us probably can't remember those instances, but I bet a few of us can call to mind a specific instant where you were lost from your parents. And it's funny when you're lost, all these feelings come in very quickly that you were unprepared to navigate. If, you know, first you have this resolve, it's like fatalistic. You're like, well, I guess I better get a job. You can be eight years old and and like you immediately go to getting a job, like that's your next step. Or you can just see someone and, you know, they're maybe even, not even the most respectable character, but you'll go up to them and ask for help. You know, you'll go up to just about anyone looking for help. You don't have that 
life wisdom to sort of guide you in the moment. And uh, so there's a sense of fear that creeps in, especially if the child is young and they have a sort of an awakening to that they were lost. Um, Or there's a sense of freedom, like, okay, now I can go to the toy section and hang out because now I get to decide where I'm going. So this story, I think it's amazing that we have a story in the Bible where Jesus gets lost from his parents. Uh, Now, he wasn't lost, like in the sense of a child getting lost in the store. But his parents did lose track of him as a 12-year-old boy. And what I want to just dwell upon in relation to this story is just the ordinary nature of the story. It's Luke kind of departs sort of the grandiose, angelic, shepherds, everyone's making a commotion at the birth of Jesus. But now we fast forward, he's 12, and it's just every year they go to Jerusalem for Passover. Every year they go, it's just their ordinary tradition. And there at Passover, they um, celebrate with the city. And you may wonder, well, how could they lose track of Jesus? I mean, this is the Son of God. This is the Savior of the universe. And you have like one job in life to parent Jesus, the Savior. And you lose him in Jerusalem. And you get a day's journey away. We wonder, well, how is that even possible? But it was different back then. The, The families and the the group of friends and acquaintances would travel differently. It'd be, it would be like our whole church traveling to go to Passover together in Jerusalem. And we, we would not all get in our own individual cars. We would just travel together. And, you know, oh, Jesus, yeah, he's going to hang out with his buddy over there. And you can see how you get a day's way away and you start to set up camp for the night. And you're like, well, where's Jesus? And you check all around the whole group of people. It's because you know everyone. It's like, just like I said, it'd be like this room. We, we could know one another and we could lose track. And that's what Jesus' parents did. And it plays out in such an ordinary way. There's, um, there's this ordinary parenting protocol that goes into place. Okay, we got to find them. So they check. I like one translation. When they find Jesus... Mary is quoted as saying, Thy father and I have sought thee sorrowing. Like there's this great distress that is placed upon Mary and Joseph because they lost their son in Jerusalem. And yet, uh, there's this amazing just setting. It says Jesus was 12. The word is dodeca. It's one and, and ten, or two and ten. So he's 12 years old. And he was, really, when he turned 13, he would have had the full responsibility of living out the law upon his shoulders. So in this culture, when a boy became 13, he was expected to know the law and to live it out. And the children in their culture were raised up to be this way. And then then they were expected uh, to live it out at the age of 13. And Jesus was on this threshold. Um, a few years from now, he would call his 12 to himself. In the same region, he would call his 10 and 2, his dodeca, his 12 disciples. And he would say, come, follow me. 
And in a Passover, if we fast forward later into Jesus' life, there would be a Passover where he would raise up this cup and say, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Whenever you drink this, remember me. Remember what I'm about to do. And he would go to the cross and die in this very city. He's at Passover, a 12-year-old boy. And it's, it's very ordinary for him. It's every year they've done this as a family. And probably most ordinary is just the way it plays out. Like I said, the angels don't show up helping find Jesus. And then they find him in the temple. And, and he has this amazing response. This, to me, is where the story gets extraordinary. It's, it's like a fine, nuanced line where this story goes from ordinary to extraordinary. And it's when we see the behavior of Jesus. He's postured. It says that he's sitting, listening, and questioning those in the temple. And they're amazed at his responses. Colossians 2, 3, I love how Paul talks about the wisdom and the knowledge hidden in the person of Christ. It says that the knowledge of God's mystery is in Christ. In fact, in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. In Christ are hidden every treasure of wisdom and knowledge is hidden in the life of Christ. And it's revealed through his life, his words, his death, and and how he saves all of humanity through his death and resurrection. Yet within this person remains every treasure of wisdom and knowledge. And yet he is the one sitting, asking questions. And then, again, you almost have to do the work to see how extraordinary this is. But Jesus opens his mouth and he speaks. Up until this point in the story, the Messiah has never um, spoken in the sense that we don't have any record of the quote. But in the Gospel of Luke, we have the first quoted, recorded words of Jesus. And I love the the red-letter Bibles because it kind of helps you see where Jesus speaks. And so this, obviously this was not his first words because he was 12. But these are the first words that we have recorded. And he asked these questions that are really interesting. Before we get to them, we can almost walk through the Gospels just as a little fun exercise here. We'll go through each Gospel and look at Jesus' first words. The first time Jesus speaks up in the, Matthew of, uh, in the Gospel of Matthew was in chapter 3. And he says this. He says, Thus let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. He said this to John the Baptist because John the Baptist was about to baptize him. And he was hesitating. He's like, I should not be the one baptizing you. You should be baptizing me. And Jesus says, no, let it be so now. You're going to baptize me right now, and we're going to fulfill all righteousness. And he does it. And then in the Gospel of Mark, we have the adult Jesus showing up on the scene. The Gospel of Mark begins with the Gospel. And Jesus speaks. He speaks his own Gospel. He says, the time is fulfilled. 
The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Jesus said that. And he announces and proclaims his own gospel, and he, and he calls people to repent and believe. And then the gospel of John, he, this first quote is kind of fitting if you know the gospel of John. What are you seeking? Come, you will see. The first quote of Jesus in the Gospel of John was said to two of the disciples of John the Baptist. They hear that Jesus is the Lamb of God, and they're curious. And Jesus asks them, what are you seeking? And then they say, well, where are you staying? He says, come and see. He invites them to where he's staying. It's really cool how we see this. But going back to Luke, I think similarly we can see the extraordinary power of these words. Why were you looking for me? Almost implied. Why were you looking for me anywhere else in Jerusalem? Where did you think I would be in Jerusalem? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And it says that Mary and Joseph were astonished, but they didn't understand this. Wait a minute. Isn't Joseph his father? So we see this um, identity of Jesus, that he is the son of the father in heaven, and he is drawn to the business of his father in heaven at the temple. And his parents are... Um, struck by it. In fact, Jesus' behavior, he's taking a risk that appears irresponsible to his own parents. Yet he's the savior of the world. So obviously, this was a good thing he did. I mean, he was doing something that he was supposed to do. And yet even to his own parents, it seemed irresponsible. And this is where we get to the, the idea of Jesus speaking in his own voice. Up to this point in the story, the prophets, everything, the birth story, many things were said about Jesus or above him or around him. But out of the mouth, the heart speaks. Out of the good in a man, he speaketh. Jesus opened his mouth, the Savior of the world. As a 12-year-old boy, he is speaking up in the temple and saying, why were you looking for me anywhere else? This is where I belong. And he was saying so much in that moment to his parents that they couldn't quite do the math. And again, in a very ordinary way, the story ends with Jesus, the 12-year-old boy, being obedient to his parents, going back to Nazareth. That's how it ends. But as we use this story as a, a springboard into the idea of renewal or discipleship, um, first we have to go back to the first thing, which is rebirth. Now, Jesus... Um, was born a boy, a, a, a child, a complete human. And yet he was also God. He was God in the flesh. And within him, uh, he set aside a lot of the things he enjoyed as God 
and he humbled himself by taking on our form, the form of humanity, the form of a servant. He humbled himself, not grasping on to his identity in God, but letting that go. And then it says that Jesus had to grow and mature and advance. And what does this mean? How can Jesus advance in wisdom? And not only that, but how can he have the favor of God? Let's look at this last verse of the passage, Luke 2.52. If you um, like to highlight in your Bible, I think this would be an awesome verse to highlight or to memorize or to look at. Speaking about our Savior, and Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. How can Jesus increase in favor with God? He is God. And yet that's what it says. The word favor is grace, charis. And what we see here is that Jesus' earthly life was very ordinary. He had to grow up into his identity as the Son of God. And though he was always that, he's the firstborn over creation. When he was an infant, he was relegated to the way that an infant thinks and discerns the world. And then he grew. It says that he waxed, he stretched. He grew in stature. He grew in wisdom. He grew into himself, into the fullness of who he was. Within him was all wisdom and knowledge, but he had to grow into that from infancy to manhood. And we see this little picture of the 12-year-old Jesus kind of living on that threshold. And when we look at that, we can see... um, just see into it. This Luke 2.52 is actually a quote from the Old Testament, so it's a little bit of a hint on what's happening here. In 1 Samuel 2, verse 26, we have this verse. Now the boy Samuel continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with man. It's actually almost word for word, the same that was said about Jesus. Now, Samuel was dedicated at the temple, and his mother, Hannah, dedicated Samuel at the temple. And um, Hannah and Samuel maybe had a relationship somewhat akin to Mary and Jesus. And Hannah would come to the temple every year at the appropriate times and provide clothing for Samuel. And he grew up in the temple, and it says that he grew both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with man. And now we see Jesus going in the same direction, but he's the Son of God. And this is a picture of his humanity, that he has gone the same path for the people, and yet he's done it perfectly. So as we close, just thinking through, well, how does this apply then to our lives? I mean, obviously, we are not Jesus. We're not the Son of God. And yet we're called to live a life like Christ. And it starts with this idea of rebirth. There's a passage, Ephesians chapter 2, that'll be on the screen, talking about this rebirth. 
And listen to this in relation to your own salvation. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which, in which you once walked. I love that word trespasses because it's kind of like you climbed over that fence. You went in there. You were not supposed to do that. You were not supposed to be in that zone. You trespassed. And this was wrong. And this is our, our lineage from Adam, the lineage of sin, the heritage of sin. Many of us have um, inherited kind of these sinful patterns from our own very own families, the dispositions of our way of talking or way of thinking that we pass on to our children. This is passed on one generation to another. And then we invent our own ways um, of, of doing wrong. And yet within us, we have this desire to be renewed. We think we can do it on our own. But God, back to this verse, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. This is not something that you did. This is not something that you achieved by self-improvement. This is a standing before God that's been given to you by the mercy and the grace of God. And this rebirth is something that comes by faith. And it's a recognition that to be restored to God is not something that you're going to do on your own. It's something that's achieved by the work of Christ. And you embrace it. But very quickly, uh, God goes from that to the refining process. But just one last thought on, on this rebirth. We'll, we'll often talk about um, being lost and now being found. And so there's these words we use, from death to life, from being lost, now being found. This is a, not a great analogy, but it might be helpful to someone here. Um, being lost is, is something that you cannot get yourself out of. So it's like, if you're a set of keys, okay, just go with me here. If you're a set of keys and you're lost, um, and, I, and it's my car and these are my keys, and you're sitting under my jacket, there's nothing you can do in and of yourself to yell out. Okay, now there are beepers on the keys now, so I guess this analogy is already breaking down. But a, simp- a simple key meant to start this car that's lost somewhere, there's nothing it can do in and of itself to get back to the car. In fact, I believe that's why cars come with two sets of keys because you lose one initially and then you hold on to that second set so much more fervently. You're like, I'm not going to lose. They're expensive to get replaced. But being lost is something that is so, uh, so much like being a set of keys that's lost. Maybe you're out in a field and now you're all rusty even if you've found the car, you couldn't start it because your, your battery's dead. Everything's it's gone. Um, but Jesus finds us. He came to seek and save the lost. But then we get into this process of what we call the Christian life or discipleship, and we're, we're instructed, well, now you should become more like Christ. But how do we do that? At times, it can just feel like a New Year's resolution, like I'm going to get healthy this year. I'm going to start reading my Bible and we start to do it, and we see some fruit, but then we get stuck in ourselves at the same time. 
And that's where we get into this renewal, this refinement process. Um, Also from Ephesians chapter 4, we have this verse. Think about this in in relation to your own life. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 15. We are to grow up, and you you can skip to it. We have it here on the next slide. Uh, the one before that, yeah. We are to, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 15. We are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. You are to grow up into Christ, into his image. And this is empowered by the Holy Spirit. But how do we do it? How do we do it? You can uh, go to that other, Second Corinthians four sixteen. This sort of speaks to the reality of the situation. Though our outer bodies are falling apart day by day, our inner selves are being renewed day by day. And this is the Christian life as we go, the discipleship process, the refinement process. We get transformed into the image of Christ. But how does this look and feel in real life? Um, I love quotes. I'm a collector of quotes. I have this notepad on my phone. Whenever I hear a good quote or read one, I put it in there. So I've compiled a few quotes here. And they sort of like go through the spectrum of what it means to be renewed in Christ after you've been come to salvation and, and now you're a follower of Jesus. But what does this life look like? What does the Christian life look like? The first one is from C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity. He has this chapter, is God making nice people or new men? And he plays with that question. And I love this quote. He says, he meant what he said. Those who put themselves in his hands will become perfect as he is perfect. Perfect in love, wisdom, joy, beauty, and immortality. The change will not be completed in this life, for death is an important part of the treatment. How far the change will have gone before death in any particular Christian is uncertain. Meaning, we're not really sure how refined you're going to be in this life. And I might get an amen on this. As you get older, the changes in some ways get harder. You kind of get more set in your way of being. And yet the Lord still wants to change who you are, the kind of person you are. He wants you to be more loving, more kind, more gentle, less prone to anger. And it's a process. It's a refinement process. The, the hardship of the process is from this next quote. That's uh, a quote by Henry Nouwen from his book, Can You Drink the Cup? He's talking about this. What does it mean to be a disciple and follow after Christ? And he says, When we are crushed like grapes, we cannot think of the wine we will become. The sorrow overwhelms us, makes us throw ourselves on the ground, face down, and sweat drops of blood. And he's speaking about the life of Christ and how there's a similarity that we experience in our own lives with the sorrow, the crushing, 
It's, you know, that same passage I read from, it says we are being poured out unto death. But Christ is always at work in us for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of others. And then this one is a little bit more lighthearted um, from Bob Goff. He, he's a popular author about, he wrote a book called Love Does, which is really good. But I, I like this little analogy. He says, be patient. Sometimes when it looks to us like Jesus is asleep in the back of the boat, he's actually fixing the rudder. And this is so true in my own life. I mean, so many times I'm like, we're going this way, Lord. Just like in this story, we can get, we can get a town away and still think Jesus is with us. And then we awaken and, and we're like, he's asleep. He's not even here. This is so bad. I don't even think God is real. I don't even think God exists anymore. I don't even think Jesus is here. I can't see him. I can't sense him. I can't touch him. And yet he is there in his way. Um, He's in the back of the boat doing something probably in us that needs refinement and correction and fixing. And then lastly, um, Dallas Willard has a great book on the spiritual disciplines. And this uh, quote from him is just defining discipleship. Get a last quote. Discipleship is the process of becoming who Jesus would be if he were you. This is a bit of a stretch a little bit, but what he's saying is, who would Jesus become if he were you? He's not you. He's the Savior of the world. And yet, we are called to imitate Christ, to become like him in life and in death. And who is Jesus becoming in you? Who would he become if he were you? It's kind of a, just a different way of thinking about the discipleship process. And I want to leave you with uh, just a few ideas of how this can play out in areas of renewal in your own life. These may feel like uh, New Year's resolutions at some level, and they could be. But um, the amazing thing with the Spirit of God working in us is that we have the Holy Spirit. When we believe in Jesus, we are indwelled with this Holy Spirit. We have the mind of Christ, the Spirit of Christ. Scripture tells us to take off the old self, which is fashioned after the old pattern of the world, your old life, and put on the new self, which is fashioned and patterned after the image of God. You have the image of God in you. Renew the spirit of your minds in Christ. This is scripture. It's a process. Take off your old self. Put on your new self in the power, enablement of who God is and what he's doing in you. So these seven areas are um, just ways that you could maybe think through, what does this year look like for you? The first is uh, one that's close to my heart, this idea of fervent prayer and regular scripture intake. And the question is, what are you feeding upon? Personally, I I really feel the desire to get back to a place of fervency in prayer and regular scripture intake. I put intake because it could be listening, it could be reading. Um, But what are you feeding upon in your own life? 
Number two is asking and responding with questions. And where are your curiosities in life? We see this in Jesus' life. He, for the most part, he used questions. He did a lot of teaching also. But he allowed his life to spur questions, questions that maybe didn't have immediate perfect answers. Even Mary was, was confused by, by what she experienced with her very own son. Um, but in your own life, where are your curiosities? You can use this in areas that you're interested with God and also just ways to ask people, um, how is your spiritual life? I, one of my mentors from growing up, he would, every time I would see him when I was in middle and high school, he said, how's your spiritual life? And I knew he was going to ask that question every time. And he did. And it, it challenged me. And it was just a simple question. Uh, the third is reflection and solitude. With the question, are you retreating in healthy ways? As you reflect upon this past year, are there times that you set aside, like a significant time, like a half day? It sounds outrageous to us, a half day to spend with the Lord. It'd be amazing what would come from that if you haven't done that. Um, the fourth is dialogue and study. This is, I think, the one we as a church hang our hat on. We're, we're really strong in this area. But what do you need to learn this year? What's something that God's calling you to learn more about? But the thing with learning is you have to leave it. If, if we learn how the church spreads in the book of Acts, well, then we better spread. Because if we just read about it and learn about how the church spreads, but then do nothing, that's that's very dangerous. Learning and knowledge is actually really uh, carries a lot of responsibility. And then the fifth is risk taking and sacrifice. With a simple question: Does your faith cost you anything? Does your faith cost you anything? Um, values have to cost us, and does it cost you anything? We're instructed to take up our cross daily and follow after him. And number six is obedience and patience. Are you in sync with God's timeline? I think it's so funny that Jesus returned with his family in obedience. I think that, I think that part of the story is in there for all the kids of the world. Like Jesus obeyed his parents when he was 12. So you got to go back to Nazareth. But he did. He was, he was in sync with God's timeline. And then um, lastly, mission and purpose. Are you advancing your faith personally? Are you sharing Jesus? If, you are, if you're a believer in Jesus, are you sharing that with anyone? Can you name a person that you're walking them toward Jesus? It could be a family member. It could be a child. It could be a coworker. It could be someone that you, a neighbor, someone that you have a relationship with. Are you walking them? Are you walking anyone toward Jesus? If you're a believer in Jesus, and you're, especially if you're 12 or older, I'll say, 13, are you walking anyone toward the faith personally? And I know that's a challenging question. I'm trying to do it with a few people, and it, every time I take a little step, it feels like, did I do anything? 
So I, I, I full um, grace there in what that looks like and feels like, but are you walking someone toward the faith? And then this last quote as a closing uh, thought. To be changed into the image of Christ requires an increasing willingness to participate in the process. And uh, a, gr- a great question for you is, do you, want, do you want to be further refined into the image of Jesus? The hard part is not necessarily knowing what that is. The hard part is working uh, with the Holy Spirit to allow him to change you more and more. So you can bow your heads with me and we'll close in prayer and then close with a song. Father, thank you so much for the opportunity to come about your word and to hear uh, the words of Jesus spoken over us. Lord, I pray that you would um, just allow whatever needs to remain from this teaching time. Uh, I pray that it would remain upon us in a, in a refining way, whether that be heavy or uh, difficult as it might be. Um, Lord, we do want to be more like you. And um, really, there is no better place, Lord, for, to hear this reminder than in your house, in your, in your place of worship. And so that's where we are, and we, we come humbly before you, Lord, in, in our need for you. Um, if there's anyone here, Lord, that hasn't experienced that rebirth of going from lost to found, um, I pray that you would open their eyes, their heart, their mind, their ears to your word and your language. And um, for those of us that are believers, Lord, we pray for uh, continued refinement and renewal in you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.